Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. I'm so fired up today to have Rabbi Schaefer from theschmooze.com, who is truly a inspirational and forward-thinking personality in the world of Jewish development and self-development. Rabbi Schaefer and I discuss one of the most challenging topics of today, which is masculinity. What does it mean? How do we achieve masculinity? What does Jewish masculinity look like? And how do you walk this very narrow bridge that is completely misrepresented in the Western world and that has caused so much pain and insecurity, if not channeled and utilized properly. So I advise you to buckle up and enjoy today's session. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Lift Your Legacy podcast. Please give us a little bit of background about yourself and the important projects that you've worked on. Okay, that's a fair enough question. First of all, Rabbi Rupp, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, uh, my background really is as a high school Rebbe. I, uh, I spent about 15 years teaching uh, young men, usually somewhere between the age of, I would say, 14 to, to 18. I was a Rebbe for 12 years in Rochester and three years afterwards for Muncie. And my involvement really has been and really began at that, at that stage of things. The schmooze, which is something I'm involved in now, really grew out from that. It was just really a... Um, an attempt to take the same material, the same sort of, what I, what I discovered as a high school Rebbe was that many of the young fellows were religious in terms of ac- actions, in terms of what they would do, but in terms of the real core beliefs, understandings, in terms of getting the essence of what they were doing and understanding why they were doing it, I often found a blank slate. So I sort of began many, many years ago developing almost what I call a curriculum for why be an Orthodox Jew. What does Hashem want from us? What, we, what are we doing here? What's life about? Um, interesting enough, you know, it kind of spun out to a much larger audience than I ever anticipated because while I discovered that, you know, many fine young men from the finest you know, religious homes didn't have a clue, it wasn't just that they didn't have a clue, their parents didn't either. And we were dealing, it's almost like dealing with a generation that are outwardly religious, observant, doing everything they should. The only thing lacking is the understanding why the, what's behind it. Why does Hashem want me to wear tzitzit, wear tzitzit, to daven? What is this, what is the meaning of it? So, you know, while it began again as a kind of like a high school project, once the schmooze began getting out there, I found a tremendous, tremendous receptivity. And it now, um, you know, it's kind of a little interesting because it, it's everyone now from age 8 to 88, from ultra-Orthodox to completely atheistic and, and everything in between. And the, the audience is just, it never baffles me, it never ceases to baffle me how, how broad and how wide uh, the audience is. So what do you think that people are looking for? Is it the meaning? Is it the sense that, that Judaism actually has answers for some of these big questions? Um, you know, it, it's a very good question. Uh, you know, for a large segment of the population, they're doing Judaism because it's the right thing to do. My parents did it, it the rabbi does it, it's done in shul, it's right. And, and they know it in, intuitively that it's right, but just, gee golly, why? Why are we supposed to be doing these things? What is the meaning behind it? What is the purpose of it? Why would Hashem want me to sit in the sukkah on sukkahs and, and wear 
leather straps on my arm and what's the meaning behind? So, you know, a lot of times the questions aren't even asked. It's, it's to the point where it's become so, I don't want to use the word robotic, but I do, I often use that word. It's, it's really become so rote that people don't even realize that they're supposed to be asking questions. And then when I, a big part of my job sort of is to, to walk in and say, hey guys, you're not thinking, you're really not you're not really, really asking the questions you should be asking. And many times just when I phrase questions in that way, I get a tremendous receptivity because this, yeah, you're right. Why do we do, what is the meaning behind it? I don't get it. So it really, you know, uh, it really has been well, again, very well received from that end. And, you know, again, that's sort of what, I, uh, what I'm involved in at this point. So let's develop that a little bit. If a person doesn't ask questions, why Why not? And I wanted to parlay this discussion into something that I, I love that I've taken away from a lot of the content that you put out there about what does it mean to be a, a man in the modern age? You know, how does, a, how does a Jewish person really step into that role? And how do we find the role models that we're looking for? Okay, now that is a very, very big deal question. Um, and, and it's not an easy to define because you see the role of the male is, is something that requires uh, a fundamental within a very big context. And what I mean by that is as follows. Um, every Jew has a mission, has a purpose, and we have the Torah as the system for self-perfection. Now, the reality that men have a different role than women is something that's not very socially popular, not really acceptable. It's, it's a shame because, to be honest with you, for the past maybe 10 years, I've been dealing with a tremendous amount in marriages and one of the biggest obstacles I find to a successful marriage is not getting that there are gender differences. In other words, meaning if you're taught from the time you're a little boy or a little girl that men and women are exactly the same, just that some were brought up with dresses and some pants, then you get married and you discover that your spouse does not function the same way, not the same priorities, not the same interests, not the same temperament, and, and, and it doesn't make sense. And no matter what you do, until you're able to grip the fact that there are gender differences and just the fact that I'm a male and my wife is a female, that alone will define very real differences in what she wants, what she needs, what I need, and how to, if you're not, again, going to really deal with it on some level. So again, I find it, it just becomes an impossible. It's like you're, you're trying to navigate with your eyes closed. And again, socially, since the, you know, the, I guess probably the, the late 50s, early 60s, we've been bombarded as a society with the concept that men and women are identical except for the inequalities. And I'm sad to be willing to tell you it, it ain't so. It just is not at all true. And it's so false. And no matter how much you push it, no matter how much you propagate it, if you're going to take a lie and push it out there, you're going to cause a lot of damage. And unfortunately, a lot, a lot of the trouble that we have, even in our own community and marriages, has to do with that fact. So, you know, your, your question of to define um, Jewish masculinity is, is a big deal question and requires a lot of, a lot of understanding. Um, and, you know, the first thing that I think really that requires thorough understanding is the dichotomy of being a strong individual and not being arrogant. In other words, meaning the macho man, which we're, you know, is another image that's out there in the media, is a very, very false image that the Torah doesn't agree with at all. Now, at the same time, I want to point out that my Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal, I learned in Chavzayim Shiva, used to spend a lot of time, not just in Musar, but in Kochas and Nefesh, in the nature of the human. And one of his personal heroes was David Melech. David Melech was a Gibar Chayel, a warrior. And he went to battle and he was a tremendous individual as a 
as, as a warrior, meaning when his son Avshalom rebelled against him and Avshalom's men surrounded David and David was clearly outnumbered. And Avshalom's men said, let's attack. Avshalom said, you're crazy. He'll destroy all of you. He'll eat you for breakfast. He fights like a bear. You don't even know who he is. There was a reality that David Melech was a tremendous powerhouse. And at the same time, he was the one who wrote Tehillim. He was the heart of the Jewish nation. He was an extraordinarily humble, extremely giving, caring, loving individual. And that dichotomy of being a gibor, being a strong person, recognizing what real masculinity is, and at the same time remaining humble and not becoming this macho, tough guy who has no feelings, is a, it's, it's not an easy balance because, again, we don't have role models out there in society to emulate because it's either Rambo or it's some wimp who either side is wrong. And that balance is not an easy one to, uh, to achieve. So with that being said, how does a person go about starting to build that? Do you go back into history to try to find, you know, the, par- you know, the ideal man back there? Or do you try to look around and find segments in the population that are doing it right nowadays? Okay, that's an excellent question because it really requires both because you do need the, the, the basics and the basics mean from people like Avram Avinu, from people like, from people like Dovin Amela, and you have to study that male role model in, in its perfection because if you don't have that real understanding of the ultimate perfection, ultimate goal, you, you're, you're going to have a very skewed version. At the same time that you have to have that role model, you also have to have a much more contemporary in your own world, in your own life. You know, I, I feel very, very fortunate that I was a, um, a Talmud of the Rishiva Zatzal because I got to see up front and personal the most powerful man I've ever met. He wouldn't budge from anyone, from anything. Nothing would budge him. And yet he was the most humble human being I've ever met in my life. I'll share with you just an interesting sort of illustration. I once picked up the Rishiva. I was about 23 years of age. I was in the Rishiva's black year. And the Rishiva would prepare in his house and then I, someone would go to pick him up and bring him to, to the yeshiva building. In any case, uh, one morning I went to pick him up, and uh, it's about close to noon, and I open the door for the yeshiva to allow him to go into the car. Uh, he turns to me, he puts both arms around me, bear hug, Barry, I love you. <laughs> this is the middle of the street. Uh, one of the, my role model, my Golubi Yisrael, is, is hugging me, saying, I love, what do you say back? Uh, I love you too. It, it was, but it was, it was a moment. Now, where did that come from? It came from an inner contentment, an inner a, a love, a, a, a just a flowing heart. And at the same time, this man could not be threatened by anyone. If you tell him I'm going to do this, it, it didn't matter. So I had a chance to see that, um, that sort of dichotomy very upfront, uh, you know, kind of personal, as they'd say. Um, and I feel very fortunate for it because it's, if you don't see it, you, you don't even know it exists. You won't even recognize it. And, you know, and, and I'll mention another point also, you know, humility is something that's not just rare in our society. It's not understood. Um, usually we think of the humble man as a meek, uh, sort of, uh, he's a loser. He's not really put together. Certainly not a macho sort of guy. And, and until you see a really uh, a powerhouse, a man who's conquered his nature, conquered himself, and yet he's extraordinarily humble, until you see that, you don't even recognize what greatness is. So, um, you know, the, the, the first understanding that, that real, real greatness is personal perfection, where I'm not manipulated by the situation. I'm not seduced by the world or by you or by anyone, but I have my morality. I have my guides. I have my 
essence, and I make decisions based on what's right, proper, and good, not what's popular, not what I'm pulled by. That understanding, which is real greatness and real, real, real gvura, is something that requires, again, it requires role models, but it also requires just a basic understanding. Um, you know, you go tell a, a 14-year-old kid that that's, that's, that's a, a real man. You won't even know what you're talking about. But if you'd ask me what a real man is, that is a real man. A real man is a person who has weighed, has thought about things, dealt with things, developed himself, got to a point where he makes his decisions, his behaviors, and his attitudes based on what he feels is right, what is proper. And with that understanding, he goes out into the world and is fearless. But he's truly fearless, not because he's putting on a show, not because it's bravado, but he's fearless because he knows God runs the world, God created the world, God is here. My job is just to do what I'm supposed to do, and I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And that clarity, that moral clarity, that moral understanding of I know exactly what I'm supposed to do is the most empowering and the most powerful piece that unfortunately many, many people lack. And if you don't have some real moral clarity, I don't care what, you're going to be wishy-washy, you're going to be afraid, you're going to be, you're always going to be here, there, and everywhere because you don't have a good, clear grip. So again, it's, it's, you know, it's, not a, it's not an easy issue because it does require a tremendous understanding. And it also, again, requires role models, which again, today in our world, unfortunately, are nowhere near as common. Uh, so, you know, what can I tell you, Rabbi? It's not, a, not an easy one, you know? So, so there's, there's a tremendous amount there. So step number one is this idea of developing a certain level of fearlessness. For those of us that are in the roles of fathers or husbands, how do you have both that element of kind of setting the pace, but at the same time being open to and accepting and loving and everything like that? How do you, maybe in, in your own life, in your own relationship with your family, how did you learn how to build that bridge? Okay, so that's, that's a very good point. Um, so probably, you know, one of the most important lessons um, that a human being can ever learn, and it's not an easy lesson for a male to learn, uh, but that is the ability to say the words, I, I, me, I was wrong. I was wrong. Now, I don't know how, you know, if you're married, you'll understand what I'm talking about, but saying those words are not so simple. Now, here's the point. I know I'm wrong. My wife knows I'm wrong. And she knows that I know, I'm, but I can't say those words. My knees start trembling. My jaw starts Why can't I just say the words? The reason I can't say the words are because it takes a tremendous amount of humility, self-effacement for me to be able to say the words, I messed up. There's no excuse. I'm not excusing myself. What I did was wrong. It's a powerful, powerful growth lesson. Now, if you want to be successfully married, you got to be prepared to say those words because it's a simple reality. We're, we're human beings and we mess up and that's just the way it is. We may not mean to, we may not intend to, but in, it's inevitable that we're going to hurt people who are close to us. We're going to say things that aren't sensitive. That's just the nature of being a human being in the busyness of life. So the ability to A, recognize that I've done things wrong and B, to be able to admit it, I think is one of the, obviously it's one of the keys to success in any relationship, but it's one of the greatest growth opportunities because it's that ability to say that I'm wrong that actually makes me into a bigger person. And it requires quite a bit of gvura, quite a bit of, of moral fortitude and courage to say the words again, not that you were right, not that I won't do it again, no, no, no that I was wrong. 
and practicing it is uh, it's a great great uh, again opportunity to grow it's um doesn't come that easy and it's um you know and it's something so I, you know i don't know what to tell you you know the the marriage situation the relationships in a family being a human being as a successful human being teaches you many many life lessons if you're open if you're open to learn the life lessons you know and even with your kids you know as as a father you're going to make mistakes. It's just, I'm sorry, it's just inevitable. It's just part of the game. So the ability to admit to your child that I was wrong. I was wrong. I did something wrong. I apologize. I'm sorry. That also requires a, um, it requires a lot of strength. Now, I, I really want to say something very important here because, you see, I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to say those words is because there's a distinction that the Torah recognizes that Western civilization now missed. That distinction is as follows. <clears throat> I was wrong. I failed doesn't mean I'm a failure. You see, I messed up in this situation. I was wrong here, but that doesn't negate me as a human being. I'm a human being with many strengths, many talents, many abilities, and I also messed up. But you see, that, that duality of recognizing that I was wrong, but that doesn't make me worthless. I failed doesn't make me a failure. It's something that seems to be very, very lacking in our world. And it's almost like the ability to admit that I was wrong is lacking because if I admit that I'm wrong, then, oh my goodness, I, I will crumble. I'll be nothing. I'll be nobody. And when you build a stack of cards into this house and you keep on building it and it's all empty and uh, eventually it collapses anyway, but that seems to be the way many people's personalities, their egos are constructed, just these, these facades of infallibility, of perfection, and they're really not. And being able to recognize that, yes, I messed up, but that doesn't negate me as a person is something that requires, again, some maturity and some life, uh, life lessons to learn. When you're counseling couples, I think one of the major, however you'd see it, uh, challenges or areas where a husband and wife will run into some choppy headwater, if you would, is when the husband tries to correct the wife. And how do you see navigating that relationship where oftentimes a husband will have a certain idea and will be frustrated by his wife that it's not going according to his plan, but then oftentimes she gets very upset when he tries to start making suggestions. Okay, that's uh, as you said. It's a uh, choppy, uh, choppy headwaters. Yeah, that's not an easy. Uh, it's not an easy one, and and really, it's kind of sad because it's probably one of the big, big issues that that almost all marriages um, sort of deal with that that need to change my spouse. Um, and most of the time, I believe it comes from a very uh, interesting phenomenon, and that is, let's say, my temperament is X and my spouse is is Y. So for me, it's very easy to change this area. So why doesn't she? And because I'm very good at this, and for me, it's reasonable and expected to do, why can't she just do the same? And, and recognizing that my spouse is different than I, meaning not just in terms of gender, but her temperament, her nature, what's easy to me is maybe very difficult for her, and the opposite, what may be easy for her, may be very difficult for me. That ability to recognize that my experience doesn't define reality, that my experience is my experience only, uh, it takes a long, long time to get. And, and uh, the truth be told, I find it, you know, on a regular basis. I find that, you know, I'll give you what a, uh, almost a humorous example. Uh, I get up early Shabbos morning to learn, and the house is quiet. It's beautiful. I'll, I'll spend a good amount of time. And then at a certain point, I'll bring my wife a cup of coffee. I like to bring a cup of coffee in bed a little bit later. And almost every Shabbos morning, this scenario happens. I prepare the cup. I reach in the refrigerator for the creamer. And as I'm about to reach for cream, I say, oh, 
See, the problem is everyone knows that milk requires half and half cream or something because it just doesn't work otherwise. The problem is my wife prefers skim milk. And that simple reality that she doesn't like coffee the way I do hasn't quite fully gotten into my brain. Now, we're married 30 years, I think, very successfully. Very, but it, it, it's still like it bothers me because I want to give her the good stuff. Now, even though that's, it may sound comical, it's not. Because, again, my experience defines reality. That's a human trapping. That's just a human weakness. That the way I experience things, that's just the way they are. And recognizing that my spouse is different than I, built differently with a different nature, temperament, different interests, different emotionality, recognizing that takes, takes a good while. So, um, you know, not correcting one another um, you know, is a big deal. I don't know, by the way, that I haven't found it to be men who correct wives more than, than wives correcting husbands. In fact, to the truth be told, it might be a little bit slanted on the other side, that the women often, with a with good reason and not with, for bad intent, and as women are caregivers, the nurturers, so they, they like to help and they like to improve. So a lot of times it's women who, you know, need to correct their husband. And, and again, not through malice, but through just a good nature, and it causes a tremendous amount of havoc in the relationship because when you correct another person, they just don't like that, and it just creates sort of this tension. And so that 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 concept, which I, I scream, that my job is not to change my spouse. My job is to change me. Don't change your spouse. Change yourself. Not an easy one. So what can I tell you? It's uh, yeah, it's uh, you're right. It's a, that's a biggie. But again, that's an opportunity of life to really learn how to be a bigger person, how to grow and how to how to become a, a much bigger human being. Thinking about things that aren't necessarily simple, to what extent do you advise or how do you help someone work on what we would colloquially call personal holiness that, you know, the idea of a, of a person of a man watching the kinds of things that he looks at and how he's involved with with other with other women to what extent because i know in the in the non you know i guess you could say the secular the western world that this stuff is kind of seen as long as i'm not actually doing anything wrong there's nothing there's no problem so what kind of qualitative and quantitative shifts does this make in a person's life when they're trying to work on their personal holiness okay that's a very good point but i really would like to address that in its much bigger context um for all the macho men out there all the real tough guys and who say, uh, I'm not influenced and I'm in control and I'm not like one of you uh, religious people have to be. So uh, I have a little challenge. <clears throat> I want you to walk down Fifth Avenue midday summer and don't ogle. I want to watch your eyes. I want to watch your eyes and I want to see you keep your eyeballs on this pavement as each woman walks by. And let's see, Mr. Gibor, Mr. Mighty. Now, I can tell you I have many friends in Yeshiva who will do just that will keep their eyes exactly where they're supposed to be. Now, they don't look like macho men. They don't wear T-shirts with bulging, ripping muscles. But I can tell you that they've worked years and years, and they are giborim. They are powerful warriors. They are a man who is in charge of himself, a man who dominates his personality, a man who is in control. And that is a human being who is a great human being. So it's, it's an interesting point because I think this very much plays into this issue of Jewish masculinity. Uh, we may not recognize it as such, but if you want to know what a man is, a man is a person who is in control. A man is a person who makes his decisions based on what's proper, what's good, and he controls, but controls himself. I'm able to marshal the energy, marshal the strength to say, this is right, I do this, this is not right, I don't do it. 
And again, just watch the heads go ooh, all day long as everybody's in. So you understand that you're watching a human being who's not in control. And you're watching a human being who's not very different than a, excuse my expression, than, than a dog that you'll see in the street to mates with anyone because it's just a, an animal urge and a pull. But that's not exactly what I would consider great, not something I would emulate, not something I want my kids to say, wow, that is real, where I'd like to be when I'm 40 or 50 years of age. Uh, final question. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it flew by, unfortunately. What do you feel is the biggest challenge that is facing the Jewish people today? Maybe men in particular or just all of cholesterol? And what's your strategy or thoughts about ways to go about working on that? Okay, that's certainly a fair question. Um, probably the single greatest um, obstacle to our growth, to our happiness, is something called that... Um, what do they call this little device? Uh, what do they call this? The, um, the not so smartphone. That's what they call it. Yes. Um, and don't get me wrong. I don't only mean in terms of inappropriate sites. I mean, in terms of the amount of time, the gobbling up of huge segments of human beings, conscious thinking time that's spent staring at the palm of his hand three, four hours a day with nothing to show for it because you're not really doing, by the way, I, I give people a very simple example. If you were to give me a project, let's say you want to learn a instrument. You want to learn how to play the guitar, you want to play the piano. If you spend two hours a day for two years practicing, you'll be pretty decent. You want to learn a new language, German, French, whatever it may be, two hours a day for two years and you'll be pretty conversant. There are skills you could learn in that time that are incredible. And yet people are going to spend two to four hours a day with absolutely no benefit, nothing that they get. I'm very nice. You're on Facebook and you found out that that guy before going to the gym, he ate, uh, you know, he ate uh, oatmeal with the raisins. Very nice. That's really great. My life is much more meaningful and, and, and important because of that. Point being that huge amounts of time, hours and hours a day are just gobbled up by that instrument. And just recognizing that, you know, every technology comes with a cost. And this one is the most expensive one I've ever seen. You know, I hate to date myself over here, but the first iPhone came out when? How many years ago are we talking now? It's, well, 10, probably, okay. right? So really eight, I think the first iPhone really is eight years ago, but they weren't really the ubiquitousness. The fact that they're so there five years ago, it surely wasn't. You know, and now everybody, and it's everywhere, and it's so pervasive, and it's so there. And, and to me, it's such an obvious threat, but not just a threat to religion. It's a threat to humanity, to happiness, to obviously it's a threat to, the, to marriages, to, to family life. But it's a threat to the essence of a human being, to be a thinking, happy human being. What this does is this gobbles up so much of my attention and so much of my time that it just is, it's a prison cell. And, it, and it's an incredible, incredible cost that it comes with. And I think it's one of the things that has to be taught how to use this responsibly, how to use it without letting it destroy your life. And it's something we need to teach at the youngest ages because it really is, I believe, an epidemic of our times. Wow. Okay, Rabbi Shavir, how can people find you or learn more about what you're doing? Okay, so um, don't go on the internet. If you do, go to schmooze.com. Don't get a smartphone. If you do get the Schmooze app, you just have to remember it's spelled funny. It's spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z, S-H-M-U-Z. There's an app for the Android as well for the iPhone. Um, and again, uh, it's on the internet, the schmooze.com, and there are 
is a tremendous a plethora of, of material on, on almost every manageable topic from parenting to marriage to emuna, uh, bitachan, working on one's character traits, humility and arrogance, and really going through what, what the issues that a thinking person should be working on. So it's, again, the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com or the schmooze app. Uh, I welcome you to, to be there. If you have any questions, please, uh, you can reach me at rebbe at theshmooze.com. That's R-E-B-B-E at theshmooze.com. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.